Alzheimer's disease and other brain diseases that cause dementia, such as Parkinson's and Lewy body diseases, are not infectious, but they seem to spread just the same. The husband and caregiver of one of my patients expressed this more eloquently than any facts and figures. Like many persons living with dementia, the patient struggled to recognize and explain her disabilities. He had to step in and provide me with the information I needed to care for her. Midway through his vivid narrative of the day-to-day -day care he gave her, he gripped his chest and announced, I have Alzheimer's disease. In a sense, he does. His life, his time, his attention, and his resources are wrapped up in her daily care. The illness is costing him time he otherwise could devote to work and their family. He is one among the millions of caregivers whose expenses of time and money account for as much as two-thirds of the multi-billion dollar annual cost of this disease. This past year with COVID has been an awful natural experiment, testing what it means to live like this couple. That was Jason Karlowish, co-director of the Penn Memory Center, reading from his recent first opinion titled, The Long, Exhausting Reach of Dementia Care. We'll also hear from Richard Bartholomew, whose wife, Julia Converse, was another patient of Jason's. And a note to listeners, we had to use Zoom audio for parts of this week's show, so there may be a few bumps along the way. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life-saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare providers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Jason and Richard. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you both for taking the time to talk with me. There are so many ways to begin a conversation about dementia and caregiving. Jason, let me start with you. You've worked with hundreds, but probably thousands of people with Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia and their families. What's the main thing they want to know at first? In the beginning, what's causing the memory problem? And then once they find out that the cause is a neurodegenerative disease, such as Alzheimer's disease, what to expect in the future? Uh, we once systematically surveyed all the folks who came to our practice just to find out what you want to talk about in a whole list of topics, three quarters of them picked what to expect in the future. Richard, how did you and, and your wife feel when you started down this road? Well, she was having some um, memory problems at work. She was at that point 61 years old. And uh, her doctor suggested she be tested. She was tested by a psychologist and a neurologist. And the psychologist said, yes, you have short-term memory problems. And the neurologist sat down with us and said, um, I conclude you have early onset Alzheimer's disease. 
based on the fact that he could find no other explanation from the brain scans that he took and by process of elimination told us that. And at the time, uh, I think we were stunned and, and I, for one, didn't accept the diagnosis. We thought that if she quit her job, the stress of her job would go away and her memory would, would not decline. And she had a, a, a sister who was a physician in New York and she felt the same way I did, but we were wrong. And what, what Richard's describing is not at all uncommon when things are really mild to sort of, for, for families and patients to sort of say, but it's just so mild. And I think, um, how could this be Alzheimer's disease? And I think oftentimes that reflects, they have an image of one of the later stage problems that people have, that that's what Alzheimer's is. And it's all, 61 is, is awfully young. That must have been a disconnect that this young woman is having these kinds of memory problems. Yes, and there was no history of Alzheimer's in her family that we know of. Yeah. Richard, at what point did you and Julia meet Jason? She was diagnosed in October of 2007. And I think our first appointment with Dr. Karlowish was in uh, early 2017, almost um, you know, nine, nine plus years later. And uh, during that, that time, uh, she, uh, we went through two uh, phase two drug trials that were unsuccessful. And in order to qualify for those trials, uh, you, you, you can't have very severe symptoms. You've got to be in the early stages of the disease. But over, over a period of time, she declined. And by the time we had finished the second drug trial, her condition had worsened to the point where she was no longer eligible for a trial. And it was also clear to both of us, I think, that we needed uh, expert help someone who was a doctor experienced with Alzheimer's. And we had been doing a drug trial at the Penn Memory Center. So um, we were able to get an appointment with Dr. Carlos. And how did he help you along? Well, he was able to assess uh, where she was in the process of uh, the disease. And most of the help that, unfortunately, most of the help that doctors can give is advice to the caregiver. There's not much at this point, if anything, that they can do to help the person with, uh, with the, the Alzheimer's disease. But it was tremendously helpful to me uh, to understand uh, as best we could what to expect. But I, I always say as a caregiver that one of the problems with Alzheimer's is that the disease is always one step ahead of the caregiver. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Richard, because um, you're right. I, you're right. You are right concretely that a lot of my work doctoring was you, you know, and yet there's this kind of transitive property of identity, namely by talking to you and working with you, I was working with her. And, and in that sense, there's sort of this interconnectedness between the two of you that, 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 um, frankly, I'm, I'm doctoring to. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, it's probably the most important question I ask you and other caregivers is, you know, what's a typical day? And, and you may remember how I would like probe you for details. You know, I just didn't tolerate, well, we get up and then we have breakfast and then we have lunch, you know, <laughs> because I was really trying to tease out, you know, does she have a day that's safe, social and engaged? And, you know, I'm very cognizant, of course, that, that, that much of that, particularly by the, you're right, you know, I met Miss, Miss Converse when she was in the moderate stage of the disease, moderate stage of dementia, you know, 
Richard had charge of, of making sure she had a day that was safe, social and engaged. I mean, to put it bluntly, you know, without Richard, she'd be dead. So what was day to day life like with your wife? Well, it evolved very uh, gradually over a period of years. She lived after the diagnosis for 12 and a half years, uh, which was more than a third of our married life. I continued to work for three years after her diagnosis, but I knew that uh, I would have to retire uh, eventually to take care of her. And she, she never wanted to go into a nursing home or a memory care unit. So I was committed to keeping her at home, which fortunately I was able to do, particularly in uh, light of, of what happened with COVID. Um, so uh, as I said, things evolved very, very slowly, very gradually. And over time, uh, major problems start start to occur. I would say, and this is not, uh, Dr. Karlowish can, can confirm this, but the, the typical problems that we experienced, they're typical to other Alzheimer's patients where um, she lost the ability to read fairly early, early on, which meant no email and so forth. Boredom was a big issue. Um, Wandering became a big issue. You know, um, uh, one of the major hurdles to get over is to get patients with Alzheimer's to stop driving, to agree to stop driving. And later in the disease, there are other uh, issues that come up, such as uh, hallucinations and living. She lived in a fantasy world toward the end. Uh, she talked to herself in the mirror quite frequently, had very intense conversations sometimes. Sometimes they were um, pleasant and happy, and other times they were quite the opposite. What you're describing sounds a lot like the person who isn't you that Jason read about in the very beginning. His life, his time, his attention, and his resources are wrapped up in her daily care. Yeah, and that's why the, the, the caregiver who told that to me uh, also was a husband caring for his wife. And and I remember when he said it to me, and I, as I recount it in the essay, it says also in my book, uh, The Problem of Alzheimer's, because it's just such a resonant story that really just the wisdom of, 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 of someone living with the disease. I, I think um, as I, as I listened to Richard recounting events, I think one very important event that Richard recounted there that gets to this issue of how he in some sense had Alzheimer's is he had to stop work three years into her disease. You know, I, I, I think it's probably safe to say, Richard, you would have continued working, you know, but for that. And, you know, um, if you think about that, uh, that's that is the entry into the economic cost of this disease to America, namely family members either leaving the workforce or reducing their workforce participation or not advancing in the workforce like they could have um, because the job and it, it's a brutal term to use, but caregiving has an aspect that is work. The labor of caregiving falls on them, you know, and and uh, this is why families don't have as much money as they would have needed. Uh, can't spend money on other things like the education of children, have less for retirement, aren't paying as much into Social Security, et cetera. So that's if you take Richard Bartholomew and multiply him across the 11, 12, however many millions of caregivers, that's the triple billion dollar cost of this disease to America. It's quite amazing. I think that general point is important. Uh, I would say that in my instance, it wasn't necessarily the case because um, I was a partner in an architectural firm and the partner's agreement um, 
mandated that we start ownership transition the year that we turned 65 and it was a five-year process. So the year I turned 70, um, I was no longer a partner in the firm. I could have stayed on as a consultant or an employee, but it was, it, it was a time that also coincided with the um, uh, economic recession. And um, it, it was a combination of events that um, uh, resulted in my retirement. But that's but what Dr. Carlo was just saying is, is, is a very important general point. Especially for the adult children, which are the majority of caregivers for persons living with dementia. No offense, Richard, whatsoever, but a spouse who is uh, a male caregiver is very unusual unless they're a spouse. <laughs> um, and because women live longer than men, most caregivers are a woman. They're either a spouse, female spouse, um, or they're an adult child, a daughter. And, and the daughters in my clinic will tell just the kind of stories I've told, you know, uh, stepping away from the workforce, dialing it down, et cetera, knowing they're not advancing like they used to. And, and so, you know, in that sense, it's a disease that really ramifies into the lives of America's women. A friend of mine whose husband had Alzheimer's died a few months ago from COVID. Um, I remember her telling me after he died that she felt that she had lost him years ago when he could no longer recognize her really. Was there a point before Julia's death that you felt you had lost her, Richard? Um, no, not, not entirely. Um, and I remember Dr. Carlowish telling me at some point, I, I would guess a couple of years before she died when we first started to see him. Re remember, he said to me, she's, she's not the same person anymore. In many ways, she was the same person. Her personality deep down inside was, was the same, despite her declining abilities and her loss of memory. Yeah. Richard, you taught me that, actually. So let me, this is a, I've, I've always been pleased at how you've brought that back. I did say that, and I used to say that pretty commonly, and I'm less likely to say that now. How come? Especially with Miss Converse, I recognized how there were these aspects of her, of Julia, as you, you know, call her, um, that were there even far into her disease. Albeit times when where was Julia was a question, especially when she would talk to mirrors and ref her reflection. But I remember the last time I saw her, not terribly long before she then uh, uh, entered in the terminal stage and it was COVID and I couldn't see her. But I remember how I she was getting agitated in the clinic um, at the memory center and I was able to redirect and reassure. It was, I felt like I was back at, like, you know, she was a museum curator. And she. Uh, I felt like I was back at the museum with her uh, in terms of the way she it, it connected with me. Um, and so I understand what Richard's saying. And I've been more sensitive to that um, in the last several years. In your first opinion, Jason, you drew a parallel between dementia and COVID-19. Can you, can you describe that? Well, what impresses me about COVID-19 is it's been this awful natural experiment in like a disease that reverberates through society. You know, certainly there is the suffering of individuals who were infected with COVID, you know, and either you know, have long COVID or for a period of time, at least certainly were quite ill. And sadly, into now triple digits, over half a million have died. So there's that. But I think what COVID taught us all is how some diseases just ramify. You know, it's all very well for someone to be a patient. But someone else is sort of drawn into that. And it wasn't just because people were taken up with caregiving roles for someone living with COVID for some period of time, having to care for them. But in some sense, 
you know, the losses of the social supports that sort of make our lives possible, the infrastructure of caring in America, schools, gyms, places to go, you know, we're all shut down. And so, you know, Americans suddenly realize what it's like when you're on your own, you know, when like I've got to educate my kids, go to work. And then while toss in also my elderly relative who can't go to like the adult day activity program. And all of a sudden, all Americans were caregivers with or without an elderly relative. Um, And they witnessed what it's like uh, to be alone. And moreover, many of them faced economic challenges, loss of jobs, et cetera, because of COVID. And, And I just sort of looked at that years of dreadful experience we've had as a country. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what the family members in my clinic have been saying for years, even before COVID. You know, I'm alone. I get a diagnosis. It takes me a while to get it. And it's not very clear what, you know, uh, how to get care. I can't get care. And I face all these kinds of economic challenges and I'm sort of alone figuring it all out. And, and I thought to myself, well, you know, different diseases, to be sure, one a virus, the other a neurodegenerative, but a lot of similarities. Yeah, I, I have a slightly uh, different uh, perspective on the impact of COVID, which is that uh, Julia died last May. And of course, we were in the midst of the shutdown in some ways made it more peaceful and easy because she was unable to get visitors and she had lots of friends and family members, uh, close to three sisters. And um, we did have some events using Zoom, but otherwise it was uh, the, the fact that people couldn't visit actually made it more peaceful and easier for us. Was she at home or in the hospital? She was at home in hospice care. Uh, for five weeks before she died. Yeah, no, I remember I, I, I just as the COVID outbreak occurred, Ms. Converse and, and Richard had a visit with me. We did it by Zoom. I remember I could, forgot to turn my camera on during half the visit. I said, but anyway, um, and then it became clear based on the history that she was declining. And we were able to get hospice to come into the house. And this was during the perilous early days of the pandemic when, you know, who knew how infectious this was and, you know, what was uh, what PPE was adequate, et cetera. It was really risky. Uh, but we were able to get hospice in the home. And one thing I remember you told me, Richard, in the course of her being cared for was, I wish I had known about this earlier, that hospice was available. And I've often, you taught me that as well, you know, and I've been more proactive in really being uh, 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 telling people about hospice earlier in the course and not being shy about making them aware. Because I think for you, it was a great benefit to have that in the home, that service. It was. And um one thing I didn't understand that you explained to me was the origin of um, Medicare-based hospice and uh, uh, how careful, uh, how difficult yeah. it is for doctors who are working with Alzheimer's patients to know when uh, they are really in the terminal stages and can justify uh, hospice care. Yeah, no, Richard, you picked up. That's right. I mean, um, the hospice benefit was designed for cancer. I mean, it was the sine qua non disease was cancer. It was, you know, benefits put in place in the 70s. And the benefit is a prognosis of, quote, six months or less. They don't put a probability around that, but they say, you know, I guess you wouldn't be surprised if between now and six months from now, the person had died. And yes, that's right. I mean, with persons living with dementia, arriving at a prognostic estimate that they have, quote, a prognosis of six months or less is very difficult. And I think it's one of several barriers to accessing the services and supports of hospice. I mean, quite frankly, I think what hospice provided Ms. Converse, she needed for a while, even if we, we weren't thinking she was dying. 
you know, um, and Richard, you know, you were valiant in arranging all the services and supports for her, you know, with the resources you had that she needed. And, and I remember the struggles, you know, I gave my best advice, but you had to find those services and supports. Well, that brings up uh, another point. It's up to families to provide care and pay for it in the United States. Was that your experience, Richard? Uh, yes. Um, fortunately, we, we had the resources um, and it comes, it gets to the point where you really need for your own mental health to have somebody else uh, taking care of uh, the patient while uh, to, you know, free you up to do anything. One of the, yeah. one of the things that happens, uh, happened with her is a phenomenon called shadowing. And it, it refers to the, the patient following the caregiver or the loved one around constantly. Hmm. You know, for example, I couldn't read books for many years because it just wasn't possible to sit and read a book. Because uh, she was always uh, there. If I went upstairs to get a pencil, she would follow me upstairs. I'd get the pencil, walk downstairs, and she would follow me downstairs. I mean, she was uh, completely dependent on me. So I, I needed uh, outside caregivers to come and be with her so that I could get out to go to meetings, to play tennis twice a week and that sort of thing. Um, and I also tried adult daycare, which is another um, thing that many people use as a way to uh, give themselves a break from caregiving. And these two interventions that Richard sought out, both with my advice uh, one with less success, perhaps, than ideal, but but, the, but are very important. And in America, access to someone who can provide the supervision and structure of a day that Richard needed so he could go play tennis, so he could just have some time where he wasn't constantly on vigilance, that kind of caregiver is very hard to locate. It's easy to find someone who will help bathe, dress, groom, feed, and toilet someone. It's easy to find someone who might you know help clean the house, whatever. But the skill of someone who will be present with the person in a morally appropriate and engaged way, that, that workforce is just not developed in the United States. And many people just sort of find it through a gray market of, I knew someone who knew someone who cared for someone. I think, Richard, that's how you found folks, which was people who had done it before and whatnot. Yeah. And we were, I was very lucky. It took a long time, but I was very lucky. I yeah. It's just unbelievable. I mean, you know, you can, you know, in a country where you can get any number of organs transplanted, et cetera, you know, finding a skilled individual who can help someone who's disabled from cognitive impairments live well is, is a greater struggle than getting a, a liver transplant. And, you know, the wait list is probably shorter <laughs> for the liver. Jason has, Anyone close to you, family, um, had Alzheimer's or other form of dementia? Yeah, my grandfather did. Um, and uh, we kind of tried to wing it the natural way. You know, couldn't, well, we really couldn't get a clear diagnosis. Um, never got a staging. Uh, fortunately, he had a daughter who lived in town, across town. So she was 10-minute car ride away. Um, but uh, he then suffered one of the more common complications that patients have. He fell and fractured his hip. He went to a top flight academic medical center and they did a, the best of surgical care. You know, I'm sure it was the most latest titanium implant, but um, everything else he got was a, a madhouse of care. And within about uh, five months, he died of just a cascading set of complications, beginning with a delirium, et cetera. 
Um, and actually, the events of his care uh, were so uh, uh, emotionally uh, arresting for me that, um, <laughs> uh, number one, when I would tell people about them as many as 20 years later, sometimes I'd find myself sobbing. Um, but number two, at the time it occurred, I actually dropped out of the critical care fellowship I was pursuing and switched to uh, geriatric medicine. Um, and it's a decision I've never looked back on with any regret. I, I felt that America didn't need more intensivists. It needed more people working with older adults with dementia. Do you think that experience has changed how you treat patients and their families? My experiences with patients and families have been iterative in terms of how I treat patients with families. And I'll, I'll confess another thing uh, that, you know, once upon a time, I would have called Ms. Converse um, as, 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 as that she was demented. And, and, that, and, and I would have said, oh, yeah, no, no, she's demented. Yep, she has dementia, et cetera. And I, I, I now I, I don't say that. I say, well, she's a person living with dementia. And in my essays, I write that, you know, and in my grants, I write that, even though it's two, it's extra words that they often ping you on word count. So that very small turning in language, um, you know, came from um, being with and, and listening to uh, patients and family members um, experiencing the stigmas that surrounded the labels of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. One of the things you write about in the book, and I had personal experience with, um, is your was your concern about um, people who are having surgery and are hospitalized and uh, experience delirium if not properly cared for. I remember this with with Miss Converse. Yeah, Miss Converse had a colon cancer, and um, I, I think this is what you're remembering, Richard. Exactly. Yeah. So I'll never forget this. You know, um, I, I, uh, as you can say, Richard has a very, very calm demeanor. And I remember him calling me and saying, you know, Julia has a colon cancer. It needs to be excised. And, you know, she's going to go to surgery in two weeks. And I was in a, I remember I was at, in Los Angeles at the International Alzheimer's meetings in a cab going to the airport listening to this. I thought, oh, my God, uh, you know, she's going to have a surgery. And that's fine. She needs it because she was, frankly, anemic and whatnot from, from blood loss. But Richard was telling me, you know, she'll just go in and have it done and, you know, whatever. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you need to let them know she has Alzheimer's. You need to. They hadn't really asked Richard, you know, uh, or if they asked, they didn't really register it. And you need to be at the bedside. And if you're not at the bedside, someone else needs to be at the bedside. Do never leave her alone in that room. Do not trust that they're going to take care of her to prevent delirium. I didn't think I said it as bluntly as that, but I, I made it clear, you, you need to be there. And Richard, I think that's what happened. You the, and your kids, everyone, right? Yeah, we uh, we have um, a son in Seattle. He came, um, our youngest son who lives in New York and his wife came down and we had a tag team of people. So we had somebody with her 24 seven. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just go down there and sit in the room and read a book. No, no, not at all. Uh, she was trying to rip the IVs out of her arm and she was agitated and so forth and so on. So the nurses who were wonderful and I kind of tag team to kind of keep her calm and um, keep her in good shape. She yep. was actually only hospitalized for two days after the surgery before she was allowed to come home. And, I, you know, I, I don't mean to be hysterical, but if I think if Richard and the children and his children hadn't been there, given what he just described, the agitation, that hospitalization would have lasted two weeks 
And I don't know if she would have gotten home from that. She probably would have gone to a skilled rehab and then the cycle of decline would have occurred and whatnot. Um, and I, and this is, this is this really important lesson, which is the role of the caregiver as an essential caregiver. And again, you know, back to COVID. I mean, one thing that COVID taught us is visit, some visitors are just visitors, visitors at hospital or visitors in long-term care, meaning they're showing up with a newspaper and a box of chocolates to say hi, and, and then they're gone. But some visitors are essential caregivers. And, you know, what, what Richard narrated with, with, with Ms. Converse was just that, that, you know, she was agitated, but he was there. He was able to redirect her. She could, you know, recognize him and his voice, calm down a bit, et cetera. And that's why she didn't develop a cascading delirium. That's why she only needed to stay for two days and was able to leave the hospital. So everybody benefited, not just Mrs. Converse, not just Richard, but even the healthcare system benefited because she didn't stay as long. <laughs> um, and yet, you know, COVID taught us we kept caregivers out. Now, understandably, for good reasons, we kept them out for a while. You know, we had no idea how infectious this was, et cetera. But uh, by keeping them out, we saw flares of delirium and declines in uh, quality of care and quality of life in people in long-term care settings in hospitals. And, you know, I understand the public health issue of having visitors. I get it. I totally get it. But at some point, I think we began to understand better how PPE could be used. And quite frankly, I mean, I think that, you know, other countries, again, the Netherlands actually began to rapidly experiment with allowing visitors in under careful supervision. Um in homes where infection rates had calmed down. Um, so, you know, I, I think if there's one lesson from COVID, that another lesson, if you will, from COVID, is that not all visitors are just visitors. So I think going forward, the American healthcare system will recognize the role of essential caregivers in the inpatient setting and in the long-term care setting, that they need to be given access and accommodation and be respected as part of the care team. You know, you end your first opinion essay by saying social insurance for long-term care isn't going to take away our freedom and prosperity. Dementia is. What kinds of things do you think the U.S. could or should do? Well, you know, first of all, in 1965, when the Medicare statute was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson, among the list of things that are explicitly prohibited from being reimbursed in between cosmetic surgery and I think uh, dentures is, quote, custodial care, which was a crude way of saying long-term care services and supports. An awful term because it implies the individual is a building that needs a janitor. So there is no national system like Medicare for long-term care services and supports. There's Medicaid if you're sufficiently poor, which has its own problems of, of a wait list because of under-resourced. The typical argument that began to be levied around the 80s and by the time the 90s got roaring and into the aughts that opposed a long-term care social insurance program was that it was socialism because it would expand a tax base. It's a, you know, expansion of takings and all the other rhetoric that surrounds, um, uh, uh, say, you know, employer-based uh, insurance programs that have a payroll tax, for example. And that's the standard argument you actually hear from one side of the aisle, which is an expansion of social insurance programs is, quote, socialism. And implicit in that is, of course, you know, that socialism takes away liberty, takes away income, takes away freedom, et cetera. And I just find that bizarre because as I think Richard has eloquently shown from his own experience, as well as others, dementia is what takes away our liberty. Dementia is what takes away our, 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 our resources. Um, and, 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 and that's what's, that's where, that's the socialism harm, if you will. You know, I, I have a feeling we could talk about dementia and caregiving for hours, but this is probably a good place to stop. 
Richard, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And I hope that the months ahead continue to bring you healing. And Jason, thank you for your ongoing care of people with dementia and their families and for highlighting their needs in op-eds and books. Well, thank you, Pat. It was a real pleasure to be on First Opinion Podcast. Yep, likewise. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producers are Alyssa Ambrose and Hyacinth Empanado. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. I'd love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.